Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the MCG Pediatric Podcast. My name is Zach Hodges, and I'm a pediatric hospitalist here at the Medical College of Georgia. Today, I'm excited to bring you part two of my conversation with Wiley and Jenny Purcell. We're so excited to share their story of their son, Samuel, who has trisomy 13. If you haven't already, I recommend listening to part one of our discussion before moving on to part two. And with that, let's jump right back into our conversation. In our first meeting, you previously mentioned that early on in his care in the NICU, your decision-making was mostly reactive, kind of depending on his acute problems. How did that change as you brought him home? I would say that is that has changed a lot. He's almost 17 months now. Our filter for making decisions for him has greatly changed. And one of the things that I would think often is if he lives to be five, I don't want to look back and say, we didn't do such and such because we were afraid he was going to die tomorrow. Because the longer he's lived, it's become more of a reality that he could live to be five. And so what are things we want to do for him that will enhance his quality of life? So they would enhance how we are able to interact with him. And then they would also enhance how he is able to interact with us. For example, one of the ways that we are currently processing that is his eyes. One of his eyes is a a micro eye. The other eye has cataracts and he has some high pressure issues that we have going on. And so we're trying to navigate, do we remove cataracts? Would him being able to see help his development, help the way we interact with him, help the way he interacts with his world? And so it's changed dramatically from he has a UTI, let's deal with infections, to what would just enhance his life without doing things that are unnecessary? And we have had to come up with our own definition of what unnecessary means. I think it's really helpful hearing how you wrestled with all that, going from a very short-sighted, kind of putting out fires as problems arise, taking care of that, to looking down the road and trying to make decisions that may benefit him for months and even years to come. Kind of thinking back again to those last few days before going home, I can't imagine what it was like to prepare your home to take care of Samuel. What medical personnel and equipment were required to take care of him in your home? He came home with a feeding pump. He had an NG tube at the time. He now has a G tube. He came home with a medical grade suction machine. He came home with a pulse ox monitor. And he came home on a quarter liter of oxygen that within a week of being home and the nasal cannula spending more time on his forehead than his nose, we just removed and haven't looked back. But he also came home on hospice, which has been one of the one of the greatest gifts that we've been given over the past almost 17 months. He is actually still on hospice, but that meant that especially in those early days, our hospice nurse was coming over multiple times a week to listen to his lungs, to help us figure out how to order supplies, to help us check placement and for the NG tube, to help us put in an NG tube when it had come out. All the things that were just so new and honestly really terrifying, hospice was there to walk us through that. Having that longitudinal relationship with the hospice team, I imagine is really helpful, kind of helping take care of some of the symptoms that pop up day to day with Samuel. 
Next, I wanted to focus on something that was impactful for me. When we first spoke, you mentioned that you initially were discouraged because it was uncertain whether he could see or hear. Tell our listeners why it was so meaningful to your family that he passed his hearing test and you now know that he's able to hear you speak with him. So the eyes and the ears were a big thing to us just emotionally. One of the things that Dr. Stansfield did that was very meaningful was Wiley had mentioned around four weeks when we thought he was going to pass away, we were going to remove respiratory support and he would pass very quickly. Dr. Stansfield approached us and asked if there was anything that we wanted to know about Samuel before we began that process. He said, I will bring in whatever specialist we can get to come in and just tell us about who he is if there's something you want to know about him. And I wanted to know about his eyes because at the time, one eye had only been opened one time and the other eye, it is abnormal looking. And so he brought in Dr. Prosser, one of the ophthalmologists at MCG, one of the pediatric ophthalmologists, and just gave us an explanation of what was going on with his eyes. And so again, that meant nothing medically. We weren't going to do anything. We expected him to pass away within the next week. But just Dr. Stansfield's willingness to say, I want you to know him as much as you can know him, even if he only lives four weeks, was was very meaningful to us. So fast forward, we felt like he could hear. I'm going to switch senses. We felt like he could hear. And so he had ear tubes put in when he was around 10 months old. And we opted to have a ABR hearing test. And so what that meant was it meant extending his anesthesia time about an hour. And we decided to do that because hearing was really important to us. And the primary reason it's important to us is because we've always wanted him to know that he was loved. And we've wanted to know that he could receive love. And one of the primary ways that we know that he knows he's loved is when he hears voices that are familiar, he lights up. He smiles I can sing Itsy Bitsy Spider and he will laugh at me. And so hearing has just been a sweet gift for how we interact with him and how we know that he feels comfort and he feels security and he feels love with us. And so that led to a decision that did mean an hour longer anesthesia, but it was something that was of value because it's part of our relationship with him. Initially, when he was in the NICU, he failed his hearing test, which from what we hear is actually kind of a common thing. But we were told, we don't think he can see, and now we think maybe he can't hear. And so I remember the first few weeks of having him at home, we just, we didn't talk to him as much. We were thinking, can he hear? Can he not hear? And living in a house with three other kids, the doors are constantly slamming, kids are crying, kids are yelling, and he would startle. And so we felt like he may be able to hear something, but we just didn't really know exactly what he could hear, which is what Jenny was talking about with the decision to add that ABR hearing test to really get clarity as to exactly what his limitations were with his hearing and came back. He could hear everything that really opened up the door for me to just sing to him and talk to him and see if I can get him to laugh and giggle and 
she wouldn't ever tell you this, but she is absolutely by far his favorite person. And so I can get him to smile. She can get him to laugh. His smile when she walks in the room and starts talking to him is different than his smile when anybody else comes in. And so it's just, it's really fun for us and meaningful for us to see that he is enjoying us because we enjoy him, but we want to know that he's able to enjoy us. And hearing has definitely been a very big part of that. I think one theme that I've gathered so far is that your ultimate goal for him was to feel loved. And that has changed over the course of the many months as we expected to change when you were pregnant with him. You wanted to do things that reflected your love for him. When he was delivered, you wanted to make him comfortable and that reflects your love for him. And, and as he's kind of become more capable, you want him to feel that love and through hearing and through vision. Yeah, there's real tangible ways to do it. And I think for someone like me, a pediatrician, being able to hear that from you guys, uh, I think is really helpful. So fast forward to today, what's the latest with Samuel and how's he been doing? He is an average size 17 month old, which is a big deal for a trisomy 13 little boy. He weighs almost 25 pounds. He is, I would say at about a five month level developmentally. He can't sit up. Um, he can roll over. He still struggles with his head and neck control. Some of that we've also learned too when you have a child who's blind, which there's a high chance that he is head and neck control or even a bigger struggle because you have no way to focus. And so that's just kind of a, a picture of who he's grown into. He loves to laugh. He loves his toys. He's learning how to play with toys and all the things that about a five-month-old would do. It is also very exhausting if you've ever had a five-month-old. <laughs> sometimes he sleeps through the night. Sometimes he doesn't. He eats every four hours. We were eating every three hours until a few weeks ago. So we've been feeding him every three to four hours for we're going on 15 months now, which is just wearing, if I'm honest. Um, it, it is tiring. When he gets sick, it is very stressful. He struggles to control his secretions, so anytime he gets anything respiratory, it typically turns into a cough, which typically leads to some kind of coughing fit, spitting up episode, and he has trouble controlling all that. So that's why we still use the suction machine. So we still have high stress moments of, oh no, Samuel's spitting up, go run, grab the suction machine. He also has seizures, so we have seizures on the table. So there's just an array of constant care that just doesn't really ease up. We feel like the heart is worth it, and we're thankful, but we are tired, and we are exhausted most days. And even though thus far we've been focusing on the very positive things and the very good things, we don't want to minimize the work that you do every day. And it's a labor of love, kind of always as we've tied into earlier. But as I'm hearing you talk to me now, I know that he is indeed a very valuable part of your family and you'll love him very much. Kind of thinking more big picture about his medical care, will you tell us about the ongoing care he's receiving here at MCG and, and what's been the most impactful? He sees Dr. Pierce and he is a part of her complex care clinic. And that has by far been a, one of the greatest gifts to him. 
in her complex care clinic, we see a dietitian who has worked wonders with making his weight flourish the way it's flourished. And we also see a pharmacist. So the last complex care appointment, he has been diagnosed with tonic seizures. And so we now have seizure rescue meds in the home and the pharmacist came in and did a demonstration on how we use the diazepam. Initially, there was a nurse coordinator that came in and helped us apply for a handicap tag and helped us get on the list for Georgia Power. So when the power goes out, we are at the top for needing to get our power back on because of medical equipment. And so all those things are in one appointment. It, I still, I just think about two years ago, I never even knew that was a need or it existed. But with a child with so many facets of who he is, the other aspect of that is, is having Dr. Pierce, he has a lot of specialists. I think we see close to 10 specialists here at MCG. And having someone that just consistently knows him and can help us process decisions and process advice that specialists are giving us with the whole picture of who he is has been priceless. And so we are so grateful for Dr. Pierce and the work that they're doing in the complex care clinic and could not be bigger fans. I know that Dr. Pierce's complex care clinic has really taken off over the last couple of years, and she does a really great job in taking care of her patients. And I'm not surprised that, that Samuel's done really well kind of working with that team. They really are a great group of providers. Kind of thinking outside of medical care, you mentioned previously that occupational physical therapy has been really helpful for him. Will you tell us more about that? I will. He has been receiving occupational therapy since the week after he came home from the NICU. He receives two OT sessions a week. And then a couple months after being home from the NICU, we started PT. Um, he has two PT sessions a week. So he has four therapy sessions a week right now. They have, again, been just a gift to him and to us. They consistently are a part of our life and a part of his life. They help remind us where we've been, which is so helpful. I, we just redid the goals with his OT a few days ago, and just hearing her read what the past goals were reminds us that he has changed and he has grown. And those reminders keep you going when you are in the drudgery and the day in and day out. So he's rolling over. I have to credit that to his PT they have also helped us get multiple pieces of equipment. He now has a wheelchair. We've had to get a special bath chair. We also have a stander in our home. All of those things have come because of the work of his therapist and walking us through how you get those pieces of equipment. I wish I had a clear reason as to why we started it so soon, other than it was a little bit of the thinking, if he lives to be five, I want to go ahead and start it now. And it also gives him stimulation and enjoyment. And so it gets him moving and all things that you would say are beneficial to any child. Therapy has been a large part of his story that we are thankful for. If I remember back when Jenny was telling me, hey, we're going to start having therapists come to the house. I just thought, why does he need this? Like, why do we need another person coming into our house? And early on in COVID, they weren't able to come to the house. So this was another thing that she needed to do with a laptop propped in front of her with Samuel in her lap going through these exercises. And I thought, this just seems like a lot. This seems like too much. Why are we doing this? And that's a very short-sighted view. But sitting on the side, he's stronger. 
He's able to sit in a car seat a little better. We're able to travel with him differently. And one of the things that people may not think about is that we have a four to five month old developmentally, but physically he's the size of a 16 month old. He's big and he doesn't fit in that kid carrier anymore. He has to be in a car seat. And what car seat do we get? And the apparatuses that we have around the house, like he doesn't fit in your typical little swing and, you know, moving him from here to there. And so having a physical therapist or an occupational therapist that is very familiar with equipment that can not only hold him, but help him thrive has been really important. And another thing, and it may be selfish, but just like having a teacher send home a good note about your kid, like, hey, your kid had a great day. Having a physical therapist say, man, Samuel had a great day today. Like it does wonders for your soul. It does wonders for how you see your kid because, you know, up to this point, it's only your view of them. It's just nice to have somebody else to dote on your child and love on your kid. And the perspective it offers is really wonderful. You know, we know caring for children with complex medical needs is a team sport. You mentioned all of the specialists you have working with him at MCG, but we can't minimize the importance of great occupational physical therapy. So now again, even thinking more big picture about your family, how have your other children adjusted to having him in your home? So we have a seven-year-old, a five-year-old, and a three-year-old at home. And initially, when we got the diagnosis... We were trying to think through how is this going to impact our kids. We actually contacted the school for Nolan, our oldest, and let them know, hey, there's a chance that during the school year, he's going to lose a sibling. And so the school stepped in and he would go see the counselor, you know, once a week, once a month. He just had a contact point at the school so that if something were to happen, he would have a relationship built. And we thought, oh, the five-year-old and the three-year-old, they're probably not going to remember this. And as Samuel has continued to thrive and continue to live, their relationship with him has evolved. He's not just this kid that was kind of walled off in this little care area And it's someone that they get to interact with, someone that they sing songs to, someone that they tickle and they get in trouble for kissing all over. They love him. They love to make him laugh. They love to help. We recently went on a little road trip and the oldest, Nolan, sat in the seat next to Samuel. And when it was time to feed him, Nolan hooked up the G-tube. And we started the pump. And when Samuel started coughing, Nolan was able to look and say, Mom, he's about to spit up. Mom, he spit up. And so we pull off the side of the road and suction him out. And so they have really taken on a lot of the responsibility for at least monitoring and watching him. And just to know that they enjoy him and get to see him be enjoyed by them is is wonderful. And then get to see him enjoy them is pretty wonderful as well. It seems that they've been very valuable in helping you love him and kind of coming back to that theme of this conversation, wanting him to feel loved, wanting to love him is pretty much the core that I gather. It seems that they've done really well. Wiley and Jenny, this has been such an interesting conversation. As we're getting short on time, is there anything else you'd like to offer our audience of pediatricians and other healthcare professionals about how to best take care of children like Samuel and their families? 
So what I would like to say to the pediatricians that are listening or the neonatologists that may be advising parents that are in a similar situation as us is that historically the literature and the view and the prognosis of children like Samuel with this diagnosis of trisomy 13 or 18 has been pretty poor. And I think in some cases it's right to be pretty poor. But for kids like Samuel, who don't have any major malformations, but does have this diagnosis of trisomy 13, each kid is different. Each kid's life has the potential to be different. And to just say, oh, your kid's got trisomy 13, they're probably only going to live a few hours if they make it to term, and the average life expectancy is eight and a half days, and only 10% make it to their first birthday. To just tell a parent that without taking into consideration all the things about this child that makes them who they are, I think can be destructive. My advice would be to really step back and take a look at the big picture of who this child is. And if you're not able to make that call yourself, bring some other people into the team, a cardiologist, a neonatologist, somebody that can help be eyes and ears to who this child has the potential to be. And I would also like to add being willing to help parents make decisions. We have interacted with multiple physicians, Dr. Stansfield, Dr. Pierce, Dr. Mann, ones that really stand out that have just helped us process through what our desires were, through the medical facts, and then help us think about how we come to a decision on the other side. And so I think a willingness to lean in with some counseling and help parents figure out who they are and what they want, rather than just advising because of a diagnosis. I think doctors are really good at honoring parents' requests and desires, and they're going to come alongside and help the parents meet the goals that they have for their kid. But I think what we're saying is we need somebody to help them make those goals, be willing to have the conversations to help them make those goals. And what you're saying is, is really helpful. Yeah, as physicians, we don't need to check out when we hear that a patient has a diagnosis of trisomy 13 or trisomy 18 or any other severely life-limiting diagnosis. We need to help the family sort through the details of their baby's care. What are those prenatal diagnoses that are associated with that condition? How severely affected is this baby? And if you haven't listened already, I'd encourage our listeners to check out part one with our discussion with Dr. Paul Mann as we explore some of the ethical considerations in this area. Well, very good. I wanted to give you guys one more last question. If any of our listeners happen to also be a parent who's expecting a baby with trisomy 13, is there anything else you'd like to tell them? This answer feels very emotional for me. It's a little bit of what we've just said, but find a physician that values your baby's life over a diagnosis. I would want a physician that wouldn't just say, because of trisomy 13, this is how we will treat them. Find a physician that is going to get to know what is really going on with the baby, is willing to get to know what is really going on with the baby, and willing to have conversations about different options of care. 
And then the other thing I would like to tell parents, if you have a trisomy 13 baby that you're pregnant with, is don't be afraid of hospice. Hospice has been one of the greatest gifts. I said that earlier. And we've had hospice since we came home. We did not have hospice until he came home, so it wasn't a part of our NICU experience. But pediatric hospice is different than adult hospice. Adult hospice is typically at the end of life. Pediatric hospice, they would use the term concurrent care. Concurrent care can mean that you can continue to treat the child even though they are on hospice. So Samuel has had quite a few procedures done and he has remained on hospice. And so it's just not something that means that your child is going to no longer be fed and they're going to be put on morphine and it's over. When your child has a life-limiting diagnosis, like a child who has trisomy 13, we're very aware Samuel will probably not live the length of our other children, but hospice gives you a support system to be able to care for them well and also gives you a system, I think, to help take care of you as a family. So don't be afraid of having hospice involved. Fantastic. I think that's a great way to close today's episode. Thanks again for coming on the podcast. I've had a great time. Thank you for having us. We've really enjoyed it. Thank you, Zach. And thank you for listening to this episode from the Department of Pediatrics at the Medical College of Georgia. If you have any comments, suggestions, or feedback, you can email us at mcgpediatricpodcast at augusta.edu. Remember that all content during this episode is intended for informational and educational purposes only. It should not be used as medical advice to diagnose or treat any particular patient. We look forward to speaking with you on our next episode from the MCG Pediatric Podcast.